Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, I speak with Assistant Professor of Classics, Erica Valladares. In our conversation, Professor Valladares speaks on studying domesticity in Roman antiquity through material culture. One question. Do you mind me asking, you know, I've heard some discussions and some people about like eliminating classics departments for one reason or another. Is that annoying to ask that of you? I don't know if that's a... I don't think it's annoying. I think, I mean, you know, it is something that is very much in the news and, yeah. um, you know, and, and you just see these editorials and articles and interviews appearing everywhere. Um, and also, I mean, there's also the very concrete case of Howard, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Howard University in the classics department. That was pretty there. recent, right? Yeah, this was, this came out in the past month. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, it, I, to me, it's a very uh, sad situation. Um, um, not just because I'm a classicist, but because what is evident in the situation at Howard is that you have there a really uh, strong department of individuals that are very much devoted to teaching. Uh, we have students who love that department. That is a his, you know, that is a historically important department, uh, not just for classics, but for um, American literature and culture. You know. Toni Morrison uh, was not only an alumna of, uh, of Howard, but an alumna of that classics department, right? And, um, and, you know, there's been this kind of a fraught um, conversation about classics and contemporary culture, especially since um, I would say the election of Donald Trump and the emergence of much more vocal um, fascist or neo-fascist groups that appropriate uh, the language of classical art and literature and the imagery of classical art uh, in, for their own nefarious purposes. Um, and this is not new, right? I mean, we know that classics has been adapted, adopted, evoked by you know, um, those kinds of political um, belief systems, um, um, you know, for, for a while, for a long while, right? Think back about um, even Nazi Germany or fascist Italy and the use of the Roman, the Greco-Roman past uh, as a kind of, um, you know, mirror of the present for those uh, fascist regimes. Um, but classics is much more complex and diverse. And uh, it is, you know, to say that that is the correct reading of classics is I think very limiting. Classics is also very uh, foundational for our uh, contemporary notions of democracy, right? Um, of republicanism, um, you know, of, of living in a republic as, as opposed to monarchy, right? So, so, um, so yeah, and you know, it's, it's a major, you know, it is a source of inspiration for, um, you know, a wide variety of artists and, um, and writers and, and philosophers. And, you know, Kehinda Wiley has recently turned toward the classics to explore, you know, the relationship between, you know, Black identity and Black culture and art in relation to, you know, this kind of Western canon. 
Um, you know, we talked about Toni Morrison. I mean, uh, we can turn, you know, to also um, something that classicists in the United States have begun to explore more professionally uh, in their research is the reception of the classics and the, you know, in, in the Americas uh, from the early modern period to the 20th century. So I think, you know, I mean, no, it is an annoying, it's a really important question. Um, it's just one that I think, unfortunately, there's a kind of bad rap for classics right now, which I, yeah, I yeah. don't think the field or even the practitioners of the field deserve. Right. Because it seems like the, yes, exactly. And I, I think there's like this zero sum game mentality with, with a lot of things. And so they're like, well, if you include, you know, for bringing in things like, uh, you know, trying to expand the the breadth of like historical study, literary study, all the people get scared that, oh, I'm going to have to give up something else. And so I appreciate your stance where it's like, no, we don't have to get rid of it to add all these other things. It can, we, we just like expand the fields of study and you can kind of delve deep into what hasn't been studied in classics and things like that. Or that needs reevaluation or that needs, you know, um, uh, you know, each generation brings a new lens to the study of this material, right? And um, and because it is material that is, uh, once one, one of my undergraduates here at UNC wrote this wonderful paper about the influence of Roman architecture in American architecture. And, um, and he was looking mostly at 20th century architecture and not even, you know, what we would immediately think is neoclassical, right? Um, and and he's, he had this wonderful phrase in this, in this paper, which was that uh, Roman, Roman art and architecture were part of the DNA of American art and architecture. And I think that is so true um, about the United States. It's also true for other places in the world. I'm from Brazil. So, you know, so, you know, I, I, I've seen things always through this um, sort of comparatist lens because, you know, I came to the United States as a teenager. I've, I've grown up in the United States, but I'm still very linked to uh, the country of my birth. And, you know, and it's, you know, there's similar discussions happening there. Um, and what is also interesting to me in these discussions is that, you know, students are interested in the classics. I mean, uh, you know, this is an argument that we have with our teens constantly. Like, yes, the number of majors may be small, um, but we actually get a lot of students in our more, you know, in our gen ed classes, right? So I co-taught this class with Vicky Ravine, uh, who's an alumna now of the AAH, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, on art and fashion mm -hmm. from Rome to Timbuktu. Mm -hmm. And it was a really wonderful experience. And, you know, one of the things that we wanted to um get things get students to think about was you know we have these preconceived notions uh, whether positive or negative or mixed about both the ancient world and about contemporary Africa and you know where are these ideas coming from um, and and so it was very interesting to think about fashion which is you know a global phenomenon in the sense that we all you know we all, um, all cultures at all times participate in fashion, right? And use fashion as a, as a way of, you know, expressing identity, status, aspirations. And so that was really uh, very productive. And I think very productive for the students. It was a very popular class. Um, and this past year, even though we were under pandemic circumstances, I taught a class 
on daily life in ancient Pompeii. And um, I taught the course uh, on Roman archaeology in the spring. And, you know, there were 100, 100 plus students signed up for that course. So it isn't, I mean, sure, there are distribution requirements, but there are other things that could be taken to fulfill those requirements, right? Um, so there is real interest. And I don't see the students coming in and, you know, taking those classes because they want to kind of worship at the altar of classical tradition. They come in with tough questions, right? They come in, you know, like, so what is the deal with this, this thing, these things, you know? And who are these people and how do they live? And, you know, uh, how does this connect to my own experience? And I think that they're all very surprised to see that there are, you know, there are these sort of, you know, similarities and differences, but, um, but that thinking about the ancient world helps them think about the current world, right? And this is something that is true about my teaching. And I, I, it's something I strive for <laughs> with my own scholarship as well. Well, I think that's a good transition to talk about what you're working on now. Um, you mentioned a little bit about the course you taught with uh, Professor Rovine about fashion. Um, your current project is based on that. Is that am I am I right in that? Well, I, I would. Yeah, well, it's related to it. So, um, so um, when Vicky very um, generously and sweetly, sweetly approached me to co-teach with her, um, she said, you know, she opened, you know, like she said, you know, we, we should do a course together. I'm an Africanist, you're a classicist. We, we came to UNC more or less at the same time. She got here a year ahead of me. Um, but, you know, said we're both new here. We're trying to sort of establish ourselves, right, um, in, this, in this university, get our names out to students. And we work on periods and regions that are often seen as sort of the opposite, right, of one another. And I think it would just be really interesting to get, you know, somebody like you and somebody like me talking about art. And she proposed different things. Now I can't remember what they were, but she proposed various things. One of them was fashion. And I jumped on the idea of teaching a course on fashion with her, um, partly because that is, you know, that is one of her specialties. But this was, I was already beginning the work on this project. And I thought, okay, this is going to be a great opportunity for me to get some of the work that I need to do for the second book started. So, um, so the project was already sort of growing um, when I met Vicky and we decided to teach together. But it has certainly uh, become much richer uh, and more sophisticated, I think, um, uh, through my collaboration with her and learning from Vicky a lot. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is exactly when we were talking about, you know, how do we create bridges between the past and the present? And thinking about objects of daily life is a really wonderful way to do that, right? So the objects that we encounter in the archaeological record that tell us about the daily life of individuals, most of whom are anonymous, right, to us, uh, not all of their names uh, have been preserved, uh, and individuals that come from certain social classes that don't really get a lot of press, let's put it that way, uh, in the uh, traditional historical literary record, right, that tends to focus on elite individuals and, you know, members of the imperial family, if we're talking about ancient Rome. So my work, um, the way that I see my work is an attempt to recover voices that have been traditionally uh, marginalized in the historical record, right, or in the historical literature. And so hence my uh, fascination with uh, domesticity, 
right? So my first book was on Roman wall paintings and the presence of love stories in the decoration of uh, domestic interiors. Um, so, you know, thinking about an aspect of Roman culture that doesn't usually, you know, get treated very with, uh, with any kind of extensive attention, right? We tend to think of the Romans as, you know, severe, militaristic, um, uh, sometimes, you know, bloody and kind of gross, you know, um, but they were, you know, they were a very complex society, like all societies. If you think about like American culture in history, like hundreds of years from now, if people just write about, you know, uh, Afghanistan and the Iraqi war, <laughs> and not like exactly everything else and and on. you know foot you know football games and you know supersized uh supersized uh you know uh, fast food you know in the meantime here we are you know, <laughs> you know super sophisticated chefs you know people who are anti-war and you know so so that's exactly right so we get you know we have these perceptions about um peoples right um and so i think my work as a scholar has always been to try to explore this um unexplored the more unexplored areas of roman culture so love stories for one you know the romans were really into love stories in many ways they invented romance you know and uh this interest in love stories coincides with the rise uh and expansion of the roman empire so it's very interesting to see you know this kind of development of uh the home as this ideal place for emotional fulfillment happening exactly when, you know, Rome is most invested, right, uh, in expanding its frontiers. Um, um, so it seems counterintuitive. And, you know, my idea also with working on fashion has been that, you know, there's been a huge amount of interest among uh, classical scholars, historians, archaeologists on what we consider the ancient global Mediterranean, right? So, um, trade routes, uh, the exchange of raw materials uh, from different parts of the Mediterranean world and how that impacts, um, you know, the way people live, the way the cities look, um, you know, what happens when, you know, so much of the Mediterranean world comes under the control of um, the Roman Empire and what happens to those cities. And so, you know, uh, there have been wonderful studies about the Romanization, for lack of a better word, of, you know, public spaces in various cities throughout the empire, how they're made to all kind of look like a standard Roman city with certain uh, spaces, institutions, and monuments. But that work of thinking about, you know, the global impact, global in the sense of the global Mediterranean, right, since that's, that was sort of the known world for them. Um, so thinking about the sort of international um, um, network, uh, economic and political network has tended to marginalize women, uh, right? So there's, there's a lot of attention paid, you know, to public monuments, for instance, and to the larger sort of trends in the economy of the empire, right? What goods are being uh, produced, where, and shipped to what part of the empire and what is the cost involved and, you know, and there's really wonderful rich work, uh, you know, so uh, Professor Jan Gates Foster, who's my colleague and who's also been at the IAH has done really amazing work thinking about these various quarries in the deserts in Egypt and also thinking about, you know, the individuals who lived and worked 
uh, a lot of whom were enslaved uh, in this uh, context. What I'm looking at is something else, right? I'm looking more at, um, you know, what happens to, you know, what kinds of stories about the Roman Empire can we tell if we start looking for the objects that were made exclusively for women uh, during this period. So I'm really thinking about the first to the third century CE, you know, sort of thinking about the Roman Empire at its peak, right? Uh, and thinking about how ideas of an ideal Roman um, wife, right? Of uh, idea, uh, the ideal of the, the perfect Roman woman is also being circulated, right? Through these objects. And the representation of these objects, because these objects appear in a number of monuments as kind of emblems of ideal femininity. Yeah, so objects that I'll be looking at and that appear frequently represented in Roman art include mirrors, shoes, um, uh, vessels designed for holding perfume, um, jewelry. Um, and then there's the question of textiles, right? Textiles are really difficult to study in antiquity because they're so fragile, right? So they tend to deteriorate very quickly. But we do have some latent textiles that are um, preserved in Egypt. Um, and we also have um, the, the evidence that is preserved for us through these paintings. Um, uh, you may have seen some of them. These are portraits that are produced in Egypt uh, with what was the ancient equivalent of oil painting. So it's wax that is uh, heated up and mixed with pig pigments, right? And applied to a wooden panel. And you have these amazing vivid portraits of individuals living in the first, second, third century CE in Egypt. And, you know, the colors and the textures of the, the fabrics are very, uh, very well preserved in these representations. We also have literary evidence. So one of the things that I need to think about when I get to the chapter on textiles is how do we handle this ephemeral bit of evidence that is clearly crucial for how people are presenting themselves to one another, right? Uh, and that also speaks to this kind of both this idealization of women, but also speaks to the very concrete impacts of imperial presence in imperial commerce, right? So we know that Romans are importing, uh, you know, they're importing cotton from India, they're importing silk from, uh, you know, from China, right? We have the silk, uh, the silk, uh, the silk road already, you know, and so, so, you know, what you're wearing on your body is, is telling, you know, layered narratives that have to do with a sort of imperial presence. Yeah, and, and that's one thing I've been surprised of, that you think during that period of time, people just kind of stayed where they were, but there's a lot more movement and travel back and forth than you might think between like, even the even like East Asia to Europe and Africa to East Absolutely. Asia and things like that. It's it's really fascinating to, to realize like, no, that people were moving around. Yeah, people were moving around, objects were moving around and ideas were moving around with them. And that's, that's really the core of the project. And, you know, these questions are really, um, you know, there's a lot of scholarly uh, interest in these questions right now. And I think that what I'm introducing to this conversation or a, me and a group of other scholars is the sort of, um, reframing that discussion through the lens of gender, right? So thinking about women. So I think that that's the intervention that has been in a way missing um, and that is picking up steam now, right? Um, 
um, in a way, it's it's easier to talk about these larger international pan-Mediterranean trends by looking at you know large monuments, right, coinage, uh, you know, even the material objects themselves. But once you start thinking about them through this lens of women, right, it, then you're sort of both refining and problematizing yeah. some of the questions that are already in you know, in the air um, about the way that uh, travel and trade um, uh, happened in the Mediterranean during this period. Yes, but you're absolutely right. There's a huge tourist industry, in fact, <laughs> in the ancient world. I think people don't quite realize that there are, there are places you should visit. You know, there are these sort of almost mythical uh, sites. You know, one of my, um, one of the chapters for this book looks at hairpins uh, and one of them is, is designed as a little Venus and it is related to um, the Praxitelian, um, well, Praxitelian's original statue of the Aphrodite for the Temple of Knidos. And Knidos was a major tourist spot. So people went to Knidos to look at this very famous statue, right? So it's, it's, it's very funny to see how you know, you know, we think about it like Instagram influencers who sort of, you know, make certain spots in the world famous and then, you know, or, or movies, you know, like um, Game of Thrones that, you know, like made certain parts of Ireland like super popular and, you know, and, and became like touristical hotspots. And, and there were touristical hotspots in the Asian world itself. Yeah, oh, that's great. I have one last question, if you don't mind, and we ask this of all our guests: What's a book that changed your life? I will say yes. This is a. This is. Um, uh, I'm going to. Um, <laughs> it's an odd choice, perhaps, but yeah, I'm going to say that a book that changed my life was Michael Baxendall's painting and experience in 15th century Italy. Okay, when did you come across that? In college, it was my junior year in college. And um, I was a classics major and I was getting ready to go to Italy for a semester of study abroad. And I decided to take a course on Renaissance art um, kind of as a preparation for going to Italy. I had always been interested in Renaissance, Italian Renaissance art. I hadn't had a chance to take the course and I took it kind of you know, on a whim because I was interested in the topic and because I was going to Italy and I completely fell in love with art history. I had been up until then very much in the, um, in sort of the literary half of classics. I was majoring Greek, um, um, Greek literature, Greek language and literature. And this was a real turning point for me. Uh, first, this was the book that really opened my eyes to art history as a discipline and to thinking about um, not just, um, well, to thinking about, right, everyday life, the experience, how art is experienced by viewers in a particular historical moment uh, and culture. And the sort of precisely this dialogue that I'm interested in between objects of daily life, how they are preserved and objects of daily life as they're represented in images. You know, this is part of Baxendall's study and it clearly has stayed with me, right? So, uh, so this turn towards the visual and this turn towards thinking about the ways in which everyday life is both represented in images, but also how we can 
begin to access that through the very objects that appear in these in these images. And going to Italy was also what sort of there was that was another turning point for me where I really began to look more on the Roman at the Roman side of the Greco-Roman world, right? So and I do I do think that reading Baxendal during that semester prior to traveling was one of the most important um, that, that was one of the most important books that I read yeah. uh, as a young scholar um, because it really just made that that turn towards Roman culture and towards the study of visual culture um, uh, happen for me. Well, Erica, thanks so much for talking with me today and sharing your work and your experience. And it, w- it was a great time. Yeah, thank you, Philip. And I look forward to seeing you, um, I guess, in the fall. And we'll be in touch in between. Check back at ieh.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.